familiar story, one that you have read or know, and uh, we're going to uh, this Jesus, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence and we come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ who is our great victor. Victorious here in this uh, passage in his reliance upon the sure and ready and trustworthy word of God. Victorious on the cross and through his resurrection when he disarmed the powers and authorities that were uh, against us, defeating them by nailing them to the cross. And then victorious, of course, on resurrection morning when he came out of the tomb. We come to you in his name because... He is strong and we are weak. He is wise and we are foolish. He is holy and we are sinful. And as we come to your word today to think about our enemy, we are aware of the fact that he is vicious and cruel. He is uh, furious in his wrath against us. So we come before you and ask for your grace your protection, your wisdom, even as we think about these wretched things and this horrible creature that you have made. Help us, we pray, thanking you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Our topic for these three Sundays is our adversary, the devil. And one of the challenges that we have in talking about him together is that a lot of people are disposed not to believe in him. Uh, Recent surveys found that 80% of Americans believe in heaven, uh, but only two-thirds believe in the devil. I think that's a little outdated. I think two-thirds is a little high. Now, this skepticism about the existence of Satan is not new. There was a man by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, which if you're looking for a name for a baby, Friedrich Schleiermacher would be awesome. Little Schleiermacher. You might not want to use Friedrich Schleiermacher as a name, though, because he was born in 1768 and is the founder of modern liberal theology. He was a heretic in every way you could be. 
Um, one of Friedrich Schleiermacher's aims, again, this is uh, 250 years ago, one of his aims was to eliminate from the church the idea of a real personal devil. He argued, he said, Christ never intended us to believe in Satan. Whenever Christ would talk about the devil, all he was doing was just accommodating himself to the superstitious and ignorant Palestinians that surrounded him. And this story that I just read is not a history. It's just here as an object lesson to talk about the evil that lives in us all. Satan himself does not exist. He said, actually, I don't know if you know this, but even the church of Satan doesn't believe in Satan. Uh, When I was in high school, it was very popular to watch horror stories about the church of Satan. It was founded in 1966 by Anton LaVey, who wrote the Satanic Bible. And the church of Satan, in its doctrinal statement, uh, does not believe that Satan is a real personal being. He is just an impersonal force who represents materialism and hedonism. Ten years ago in Kansas City, there were interviews with a pastor by the name of Michael Clark. Michael Clark uh, was the pastor at the time of Christ Lutheran Church. And uh, Reverend Clark was a, is a member of a denomination, the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that over, the time, over time has been skeptical about whether or not Satan really exists. Their statements have, wa- uh, have varied Uh, The newspaper articles were about how Michael Clark has changed his mind and how he definitely believes in a personal cosmic evil the Bible names as Satan. Now what changed Michael Clark's uh, mind about this was his experiences with his friend Dennis Rader. Dennis Rader was a member of Christ uh, Lutheran Church for 20 years. In fact, he was the president of the congregation. The whole church had voted him into this administrative spiritual leadership. But from the 1970s to the 1990s, Dennis Rader also tormented the city of Wichita as the BTK killer. Uh, BTK stands for blind, torture, and kill. He murdered people, often in their homes, ruthlessly. He bragged about it to the police, uh, and he hid very successfully in plain sight for 30 years. Um, Michael Clark found out about this one Monday morning when the police showed up at the church with a warrant to search the place because this had been a place that Dennis Rader had been so much. Uh, Michael Clark said, I believe in Satan because I have no other explanation for how uh, this man that I thought I knew so well could be such a monster. It reminds me a little bit of what we talked about last week with Andrew Del Banco, the teacher from Columbia University, who wrote in his book, The Death of Satan, that it might not match our modern Western scientific ideals, but when you are exposed to evils like holocausts and terrorist attacks and serial killers and ethnic cleansings, you might find yourself without the intellectual resources to explain what you see. And we started last week talking about Satan's origins. Where did he come from? What does the Bible say about where he came from? One of the things that Scott and I were talking about on Tuesday is that these uh, studies that we're in are a little bit more of a theological lecture than Bible exposition. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, our our normal practice is to walk through books of the Bible. We're going to start in a couple weeks in the book of 2 Thessalonians. But now we're, we're saying this topic. And last week, where did Satan come from? He's a created being perhaps more powerful and beautiful than any other angel that God had made, but he's an angel in rebellion against God. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote an article for Christianity Today a number of years ago. It's called The Devil's Dossier. Listen to what Packer wrote. 
Satan, his name means adversary, hates humankind and seeks our ruin because he hates God, his and our creator. He seeks only to thwart God's plans, wreck his work, rob him of glory, and in that sense, master him. Devil, his descriptive title, means slanderer, one who thinks, speaks, and plans evil against others. Created good, he's the archetypal, uh, archetypal, Uh, how do you pronounce that word? I never get it right. There we go, archetypal. Oh, the English teacher speaks. So thankful. He's the supreme example of good gone wrong. He heads a company of rebel, rebel angels whose moral nature, like Adam's, was set in the mold in the, of their first sin. For his fierce, sustained, pitiless hatred of ha- humanity, Satan is spoken of as a murderer, the evil one, a roaring and devouring lion, a great red dragon, and the accuser who constantly calls on God to banish his saints for their sins. For his habit of twisting truth as a means to his end, his ends, he is called a liar and a deceiver. He is unimaginably unimaginably malicious, mean, ugly, and cruel. His temptations are literally testings to destruction, and yielding to them is always the road to ruin. Uh, Today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Satan's work. For the next few minutes, uh, we're going to focus on three activities that Satan does. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one, three things that Satan does. He rules, he tempts, and he accuses. He rules, he tempts, and he accuses. He begins with he rules. He rules the world. Now, that's a line that you're used to hearing in a hymn that we sing at Christmas time, right? He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's not the he we're talking about. That he and that song is the Lord Jesus Christ. This, though, is Satan now. We're going to talk about a couple different titles that he has. And then uh, we're going descri- to talk about how the Bible describes creation as we experience it. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the Bible says that Satan is the God of this age. And in John 12.31, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. Now the, world tra- the word translated world in John 12 is the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos. Cosmos shows up 185 times in the New Testament, uh, 105 times in John. It is most often translated world. And cosmos, cosmos as a word, refers to an organized system in contrast to chaos. There's two things, chaos and cosmos. And chaos, uh, cosmos is organized chaos. Um, if you want to understand the difference, you should come to Awana sometime. Go downstairs about 6.28 on a Wednesday night. Two minutes before Awana begins. The children have gathered. Uh, things haven't officially started yet, but there's a lot of kids in one room, and what do they do? They create chaos. Uh, some of them are standing around talking. Some of them are playing tags. Some of them are running. Some of them are doing something with a ball. Where do little boys get all those uh, balls from? They have them. They play with them. It's amazing. It's chaos. And then at 6.30... Steve Henson will stand and he'll start the famous Awana five count, counting to five. 
And when he starts that out loud, the children know this is a signal. I've got to be somewhere. I've got to do something. This is, I'm describing this in, in uh, the platonic ideal of what happens at 6.30. I'm not describing reality always, but this is the platonic ideal. So at 6.30, he starts counting. The children stop what they're doing, and they run to their lines where they're supposed to be. So everything can start right on time. It goes from chaos to cosmos, organized um, uh, systematic beauty. Now, the, the word cosmos in the Bible, it points to a lot of different things. Sometimes it just refers to the universe as God made it. That's how Paul uses that word in Acts 17, 24, which I'm going to show you, I think, here in just a minute. There it is. Is that it? That's it. Whoops. Oh, I got ahead of myself. Nope, I got behind myself. I'll try again. Mike and I are both trying to control this, and look what happens. It's chaos. Okay, can we see Acts 17:24? Is that possible? There's cosmos. Okay. Now the word world is here, and it is in parallel to heaven and earth. The Hebrew term for the organized system that God made of the universe is heaven and earth, and the Greek word is the word world, cosmos. The God who made the world, the cosmos, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So sometimes the word cosmos just refers to creation itself. Sometimes the word cosmos refers to the inhabited world. And by that, the the scriptures would be using it to describe the Roman world. The Roman world, the government of the Roman world is organized, it's structured, there's roads, there's rules, there's soldiers, and outside of that is chaos. So look how Paul describes how the gospel has reached the entire world. Well, he means the Roman world, he means the Roman Empire. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Sometimes the word cosmos, cosmos in the Bible refers to the, the human beings. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But most often, the word cosmos in the Bible refers to the organized system that is led by Satan that functions apart from God. The organized system led by Satan that functions apart from God. Let me illustrate this, and then I want to show you a number of verses that describe how the New Testament uses the word cosmos this way. So just an illustration. If you were here in Millersville, Pennsylvania, in 1942, 1942, the world would be at war. Our country would be in official conflict with Germany, Japan, and Italy. Now imagine if someone picked you up from Lancaster County and set you down in 1942 in Berlin in Germany. Now, it would be an odd experience. Uh, Many things would be very similar. You'd see families, and you'd see houses, and you'd see factories and trains and cars. Um, But you would also see that the direction and the focus of Berlin in 1942 would be on destroying and defeating your home. That's why soldiers are recruited and sent to the battlefield. Defeating your country, it would be the theme of speeches and editorials in the newspaper. Uh, battlefield victories would be the reason for rejoicing on the radio. There would be pledges of allegiance, not to the stars and stripes, but to the swastika and the Fuhrer. You'd be in a different sphere. You'd be in a different place, a place in hostility to your own country. You'd be in enemy territory. And according to the Bible, 
the world, the cosmos, is enemy territory in hostility against God. It's an organized system, not just functioning apart from God, but in enmity with him. And Satan, the prince, is the ruler. Uh, we saw that in John 12:31. We can also see that in John 16:11. The prince of this world, Jesus says, stands condemned. The reason that Jesus, the reason that Satan could offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world in Matthew 4, that temptation where he takes him up to the high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms with all their splendor, and he says, "I will give these to you if you will worship me." The reason that Satan could make that promise is because they were his. Those kingdoms were his to give away. Um, look at 1 John 5:19. It says, "We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world." is under the control of the evil one. Colossians 1.13 describes he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And it's a system that is hostile to God. Uh, uh, look at whoops, James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The world is a polluting force in the face of religion that God our Father accepts and approves of. Or even more clearly here, James 4.4. 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, talks about the fact that human beings are born as a part of this cosmos, and they live lives that reflect this captivity, this allegiance. Look what it says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan himself, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. There's one more verse I want to show you here. It tells us about the values of this world. It's characterized by greed, passion, passion, greed, and pride. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, how did this situation come about? When God made the, the universe, when God made everything, when he called it into existence, the, the universe was united together under his authority. He was the creator and Lord of all creation. And underneath him, he created his image bearers, human beings, who themselves had authority over the uh, creation, over the animals and the plants and the earth. They were to steward and manage the earth. The story in Genesis chapter 3, I have mentioned this before, the story in Genesis chapter 3 is how Satan, through one of those creatures, led Adam and Eve in rebellion against God, and what happened was the authority structure that God made was turned upside down on its head. And Satan now is the ruler of this world. He usurped the authority that human beings had, and he now exercises that authority. He exercises it under God's control and by God's permission, but it is still his to rule. 
The pinnacle of this hostility that we read about in the book of Genesis comes at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, the human beings get together and they decide they're going to build themselves a monument, a tower, a place to worship perhaps, uh, where they could, not the God of the Bible, but uh, a temple, and they want to live together forever in peace and harmony. They wanted to remake the world that God had made, but they did, wanted to do it without Him. We want the world, we want the peace, we want the harmony that God made, but we're going to do it without Him. It's a world in rebellion. It's interesting. The Bible uh, refers to the Tower of Babel. Actually, it most often speaks of Babylon as a city that is in rebellion against God. I want you to think for a minute about your favorite television show. For a minute about your show. The characters in it and the world they inhabit. Uh, Maybe it takes place in a precinct or a hospital. That would be quite common. Maybe you're one of those uh, HGTV fanatics and your favorite television show takes place in a colossal mess of a house that's transformed into a palace. How often does God play a role in that show that you like to watch? Um, Do the characters ever think about him? Do they ever talk about him? Does he ever play a role in what they decide to do, what choices they make, and how they go about making those choices? Does, Does anybody ever pray in that your favorite television show? Hmm... The creators of that show, my my guess is not very often, if ever, and the creators of this show have made an entire world in which no one ever thinks about God at all. He's not there. Satan is the prince of this world. What does he do with his power? He is committed, as J.I. Packer said, to destroy humanity and oppose God. He wants to diminish and destroy and deface every image bearer that God has, which makes perfect sense. Um, Have you ever had a bad breakup with somebody? Um, Your relationship really ends terribly and you're angry about it. So you you have a fight with your boyfriend, you have a fight with your girlfriend, and then you go home and what do you do all around you in your bedroom are pictures of this person. And if you're really mad, you get out scissors and start decapitating, right? This per- or actually, this is the 21st century, right? You go down to Facebook and you find all the pictures of you together. Delete, 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 right? Get rid of them. Change your status. It's over. I don't like this person anymore, and I'm going to eradicate their image from my life. Every picture that I have of them is going to be gone. And here is Satan. I hate God, and I'm going to destroy every image of him that I can find. Every image bearer. John 10, 10 says, The thief has come to kill, steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what Jesus does. That's what Satan does. He has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus says that Satan is a liar and a murderer. Earlier this month, within a couple of days of each other, there were three stories in the news. You you probably saw all three of them. Within 24 hours, they were in the newspapers and on television. One of the stories featured a picture. This will be an iconic picture, I think, of the year 2016. It's a little boy. It's the end of summer. He's sitting in a plastic molded chair somewhere. This little boy sits, and it's the end of summer, so he's got shorts and a T-shirt on and no shoes. 
but he's covered with ash and dirt and dust. Right at the side of his head, coming down from his bowl cut that he has, <laughs> blood just caked on his face. It's a little Syrian boy. Did you ever see that? Did you see the picture there? He sits with his little pigeon toes in that chair. It's a Syrian boy. He was in Aleppo, Syria, when a bombing raid came, uh, killed his parents, uh, hit, grievously injured his brother, who actually didn't survive either, and left him there sitting in this relief center, this hospital where somebody took a picture of him. The thief has come to destroy. Almost the same day, there was a story in the newspaper too about a little girl from Hot Springs, Arkansas. She's four years old. And when the police found her, they asked her what her name was and she told them her name was Idiot. And the reason she thinks that's her name is because that's all her mother and her mother's live-in boyfriend call her. The police uh, were uh, invited to come to this home to investigate her. They found, investigate the family. They found that she had bruises on her ha- on her hand, uh, all over her body. Her mouth was bleeding, and she had marks on her hands from where she had been tied to a bedpost so much that the, 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 the ropes had dug into her skin and left permanent marks there. The thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. Then there was another story. This one came from Ohio. It was about a little boy who was standing outside of a gas station trying to sell his teddy bear. A police officer came up to him and asked him what was going on. He was selling his teddy bear because it had been several days since he had eaten any food, and he was trying to sell his teddy bear so that he could go and buy some food. Uh, police went to his house and found that there were four other brothers in that house with his parents and no edible food at all. Three stories about hurting children in 48 hours in the newspaper, and and uh, I am sure I'm sure there are more than that. This is the world that Satan creates. This is what he does. It is deadly and destructive and dehumanizing. It's not a secret for me to talk about, or no surprise at this point in time for us to think about all of the troubles that have been intensified. Uh, in our country in recent months having to do with racism and race issues. Racism from both sides is dehumanizing. It is defacing the image of God. Uh, I don't have it written down on the screen. It's interesting. The scripture tells us... I, I struggle to put these things together. But the Bible in 1 Corinthians 11, when it talks about idols, it talks about how um, when, when in the Old Testament the Israelites were worshiping idols, Paul says actually the people were worshiping demons. They were worshiping demons in the Old Testament. Um, not just stone, but they were demons. I don't know if that means that there's a demon named Baal and a demon named Molech and a de- demon named Asherah. I don't know. But listen to how Psalm 106 describes their worship of these demons. They worshiped their idols, which became a snare to them. This is Psalm 106, 36. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, when they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. The murder of sons and daughters is satanic in its origin. Born or unborn, the murder of sons and daughters is satanic. The thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. 
Now, actually, the New Testament warns us further. The cosmos that is ruled by Satan includes his efforts to corrupt faith. Uh, look at this from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. It says that Satan sends false teachers into the church. We're going to talk about a lot of false things that Satan sends into the church. False teachers. He says, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for himself, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ or claims to teach in his name is really from him. There are demonic false teachers. There are false Christs, false uh, saviors. 1 John 2.18 Dear children, this is the last hour as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. False saviors, teachers who want to replace Jesus with a different kind of savior. Matthew 13, 38 to 39 is found at the end of a parable where Jesus is warning against false followers. False followers. In context, it's a farming. Jesus is giving an illustration. He's telling a story about a farmer who went to his field and sowed good, good seed. Good seed is going to be good, good plants. And an enemy came in the middle of the night and scattered weed seeds the seeds of weeds, in his, in his field. And they started to grow. Unfortunately, when the good seed grows and the weeds grow, right at the beginning, they're really hard to tell the difference between the two. They both look very similar. And, and the, the workers came to the farmer, the, the, men, the men and women who worked for the farmer, and said, you know, we could go in and pull out all those weeds. We could pull those good plants. And the farmer said, so be careful, be careful, because when you pull one of the weeds, you might unintentionally pull one of the good plants, and I don't want you to pull them out. We'll wait till the end of the harvest when it's very clear what's the good plant and what's the weed. Then we'll know. And Jesus interprets his parable for them in Matthew 13, The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Satan placing false followers of Jesus in the church. 1 Timothy 4 warns against false doctrines. False doctrines. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Any teacher who tells you that you must abstain from marriage or intimacy within marriage or avoid certain foods for the sake of following Jesus is teaching demonic doctrines. Think of all that is demanded by certain churches during the so-called Lenten season about what you can and can't eat if you really loved Jesus. Hmm. There's something actually even worse, even worse, that Satan does. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. We've read this verse before. It's so important, I think. Look at what it says. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
Not only does he attempt to poison the church with false teachers and false followers and false doctrines, here he blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of the good news about Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection. I've heard men and women who are not followers of Jesus give a very good explanation of the gospel. In fact, they can tell the story very well. They understand all the facts very well. The problem is, though, to them it is not glorious truth. It is not beautiful truth. It's not worthy of their confident faith. They cannot see in it the glory. And the reason they cannot see in it see it is because Satan is blinding them to the glory of the message. Satan rules this world and it is full of darkness. Now we have to move on this morning, but I just want to briefly tell you two implications of his work. All right, two things that flow from this. What does this mean? Two implications. First of all, this tells us, if we think about his role as ruler of the world, this tells us why following Jesus is often so incredibly difficult. Why following Jesus is so hard. Why it's so challenging. We are swimming upstream in every way imaginable. We live in a system that opposes God. It opposes Him morally, economically, socially, politically, intellectually. Our challenges. Our challenge is compounded by the fact that we are natives of this world that Satan rules. We are natives of it. We speak a language. We we love the culture naturally. And God has called us out of it to live in the kingdom of his son. Following Jesus is a little bit like learning a foreign language. Some of you speak more than one language. That's wonderful. I envy you for it. I can barely speak English as I've made clear already today. Uh, learning a new language is, is difficult. I remember when uh, Fred and Joanna Defoe came to uh, visit us for the first time, their English was excellent, was great. But for them, living here and speaking English, was, it was exhausting. Uh, speaking English all the time, dealing with our unusual American customs. It was summer, everything was air-conditioned. Apparently nothing in France is air-conditioned because the Defoe's were always cold. We'd say, we're leaving, we're going to the church picnic. It's 92 degrees. Wait, I have to go get my sweater. (laughs) You don't need a sweater. They were born in France. They spoke French. They knew French culture. They were comfortable in their French culture. And then they flew to America, a completely new system. We are natives of Satan's world. And we have been called out of it. We're called to have our minds not conformed to this world, but to have them be transformed. And it is a tremendous challenge. It is very hard. This is why the promise of the Holy Spirit is so precious. We need him. When John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, we need promises like that because he that is in the world is potent and powerful. We're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to represent Jesus in this world. We're trying to speak to him about people who are blinded by supernatural forces uh, to his glory. Do you think that that would be easy? Sometimes I fear that we talk about it as if we should. Bumper stickers make it sound easy, don't they? Uh, You have the Bible, you have the Spirit, you have the grace of God. What's wrong with you? should be easy. The answer to the question is, have you seen the enemy? 
Do you know what he does, what he can do? This is war. This is war. Don't be discouraged by small things, by small steps, by slow progress, because this is war. And our enemy is malicious, ugly, mean, and cruel. Now here's another implication, I think, if, if we understand that Satan is the ruler of this world in which we live, we understand how the church functions, how the church functions. We are outposts of the new age. We are outposts of the world to come. Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We have a new citizenship, not in this world. Here we are strangers. Jonathan Lehman says that every local congregation is like an embassy. We're populated by ambassadors. We're an embassy of heaven. When we welcome people into membership, uh, we verify their new citizenship. And we welcome them as fellow citizens. We're meeting brothers and sisters on foreign soil this morning. And in many ways, this is a war planning and preparation meeting. Friends from my home uh, home church in New York are missionaries in Congo. They were there during a particularly difficult period of time for that country. There's a lot of chaos going on there. And one day, the embassy showed up at their house, knocked on their door and said, you have 15 minutes, pack your bags, we're going. They got as much as they could together. They got in the limousine, and the embassy limousine drove them and rescued them from their situation. Uh, the, The limousine had bulletproof tires, which is good because they were shot at as they were driving from their home to the embassy. So embassies do. Embassies rescue and help and protect their citizens when they live in a dangerous foreign country. We meet this morning as citizens on foreign soil of a different country in this world that is ruled by our enemy and we are here to help one another in the battle. What is Satan's work? He rules the world. Someday, Jesus is going to come and take it back. He will rule the world in truth and grace. But for now, Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, I have two more points in very little time. That's okay. Number two, what does Satan do? He tempts. He tempts. There's key passages that we could look at. We've read them and studied them before. Genesis 3, uh, Matthew 4, James 1. When Satan tempts, he does two things by and large. This is a key theme in all of those passages. Number one, he doubts God's goodness. He has us doubt God's goodness. And secondly, he denies God's word. Doubting God's goodness, denying God's word. When Satan tempts you, he's trying to convince you that doing what God says will hurt you. It's not good. It's, it's uh, going to be harmful and you shouldn't trust him. And Satan is a, is a liar. Uh, Satan lies to us by telling you that God's word is to be rejected. You, you see that pattern every time in the Bible. Doubting God's goodness, denying God's word. We also remember as we read the Bible that temptation is limited. It's limited. 1 Corinthians 10.13. I think I printed that for you. I should look to make sure. Maybe it's up on the screen. I don't know. Well, it's there in your notes. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
When you read about God's interaction with Satan over Job, you see clearly Satan's power to tempt is limited. Satan is smart, but he does not know everything. Satan is strong, but he's not all-powerful. And he is limited. Martin Luther called Satan God's devil. He's that limited by God. What that means then, doesn't it, is that I am without excuse when I stand before you. When I speak to you and I'm cutting and I'm unkind, or when when words come out of my mouth that are angry and proud and self-righteous, or when you see in me that my life is dominated with worldly passions, I have no excuse. There is a way out. Satan is not omnipotent in my life. Satan tempts. Now finally, Satan accuses. Satan accuses. For this, I want to spend a few minutes, if you would indulge me, by turning to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3 is where I want to direct your attention this morning for just a few minutes. Zechariah is that one of the tiny prophets right at the end of the Old Testament. So you can find Matthew and go to the left just a little bit. You can find Zechariah chapter 3. And just for a few minutes, I want to look at this passage with you. Satan accuses. Satan accuses. Now, Zechariah the prophet is having a vision. He's having a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before God. It's a very strange vision, but it's, it's wonderful. Chapter 3, uh, verse 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. That's what Satan does. He accuses. He speaks to God about all of our faults and all of our sins and he demands justice. Um, In a sense, I don't want to belittle this at all, but Satan is a demonic tattletale. He's a snitch. Did you see God what he did? Now, in this passage here, in the accusation, we see the reason why uh, Satan is accusing him. Verse 3 tells us about Joshua's problem. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Now, the word filthy is, is some transla- sometimes translated the word awful, oh, not awful, awful, O-F-F-A-L, awful. Awful is the technical term for food that is on its way moving through the digestive system. If you were to slaughter an animal and uh, you were to open up the large intestine, what you would find inside the large intestine would be awful, awful is what it would be. That filth. And that filth is all over Joshua the high priest. And that awful, that sorry, that awful that is there, that filth that is there, is symbolic of the sins of the people. Joshua, as high priest, is supposed to be the cleanest man in the nation. Before he goes into God's presence, he bathes, he changes his clothes, he gets all ready so that he is the cleanest, purest, ritually most impressive person to go stand into God's presence. And here he is standing in God's presence and he's covered with this filth. Doubtless Satan is pointing this out, and doubtless Satan is absolutely right. Satan does not need to exaggerate the spiritual condition that he finds us in before God. We're guilty. We're awful. Now verse 2 says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick 
snatched from the fire. And then look at verse 4. It says, The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. He removes the impurity, and then he announces his work to Joshua. He says, I have taken away your sin. I have taken away your sin, he says to the priest. And then he clothes him. I will put fine garments on you. uh, Zechariah the prophet is standing by and he gets a little excited about this. This is is excellent. Don't just give him robes. Verse 5, do the whole thing. Really do him up. Verse 5, put a clean turban on his head too. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And here's some promises. Verse 6, The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now, I know I'm fast-forwarding through the Bible an awful lot, but the servant here he's speaking of, the branch, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who in one day removed sin by his death on the cross. He didn't remove sin by having uh, more good deeds than bad deeds. He didn't remove sin by just uh, sweeping them under the rug and trying to forget. He didn't remove sin by resolving to be a better person. That's how we think about removing sin often, dealing with our guilt. He removed sin by absorbing in his body the penalty that we owe because of our sin, dying a substitutionary death for us, satisfying God's justice. And God receives and forgives all who come to him by faith in the Lord Jesus. This passage is reminiscent of that song, isn't it? His robes for mine. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. I I get the clean robes. Jesus took my filthy robes. I know that the Bible says that Satan is a liar, but when Satan stands before God and he talks to God about my sin, he doesn't even need to lie. The truth is damning enough I am guilty, guilty, guilty. All of us have heard those accusations. Haven't you heard those accusations in your mind? You are guilty. How could God love you? How can he forgive you? How many times have you committed this sin now? You're a Christian? Ha! Could have fooled me. And the ground of your assurance in those moments is in the Lord's declaration. I have taken away your sin. Satan may accuse, but the only one who has the right to condemn us eternally has said, I have taken away your sin. Faithfulness in the midst of when those accusations come, faithfulness to God, remind yourself of this. Remind yourself of this. Hold on to it. It's why we sing, right? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, 
Not just the sins I committed before I heard the gospel. Not just the part of sins that I committed 10 years ago. Not just the part of the sins that I have uh, been able by the grace of God to overcome. My sins, not just part of them, but all of them, the whole of them, is nailed to the cross. That is incredibly good news. It's not warm milk news to lull you to sleep news. It's not news to make you relax. It's news to make you vigilant and alert because our adversary, the devil, is at work. Next week, we're going to talk even more about our response to him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we reflect that these words that we have considered, uh, this work that we have considered this morning is indeed sobering. Uh, Father, we, we speak to you this morning as your ambassadors living here in this world ruled by your enemy and ours. I pray this morning, Father, that, that you, in light of the fact that you have opened our eyes so that we can see the glory of Christ, we do pray again today that you would sustain and protect us. That you, though Satan may ask to sift us as wheat, that you would uh, forgive and restore and um, help us to stand Thank you, Father, for the promise that you hold us fast by your strong right arm. You are good and strong and wise, better and stronger and wiser than our adversary, the devil. We thank you for that. Grant that we might live sober lives. We pray these things together in Christ's name, saying, Amen.